Hello and welcome. You're listening to Connected and Ready, an ongoing conversation about innovation, resilience and our capacity to succeed, brought to you by Microsoft. I'm Gemma Milne. I'm a technology journalist and author, and I'm going to be exploring trends around how companies are adapting to a disrupted world and preparing for tomorrow. We're going to speak to the innovators who are bringing products, operations and people together in new ways. In today's episode, I'm chatting to Amar Hanspel, CEO and co-founder of Bright Machines, who shares his perspective on why intelligent automation is the future of manufacturing and how it's creating new avenues for competitive advantage, particularly in the deployment of micro factories. Along the way, we talk about emerging technologies that are accelerating innovation in manufacturing, what the potential pitfalls and challenges are surrounding reskilling, mindset shifts and justifying of costs, and what companies can do today to stay ahead of the curve. Before we start, I want to thank all of you listeners out there. If you have a topic or a person you'd love to hear on the show, please send us an email at connectedandready at microsoft.com. We're so thankful for you all. Now, on with the episode. Amar, thank you so much for coming and joining us on the show. Let's start with a little introduction. Tell us who you are, what you do, and how you got to where you are today. Gemma, it's great to be here. Uh, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, my name is Amar Hanspal. I am the co-founder and chief executive officer at Bright Machines. It's a company focused on building a software platform for industrial automation. And I got here because many, many years ago, I trained as a mechanical engineer and I spent my life so far in the first 20, 25 years of my career building CAD CAM software for engineering and architects. And I noticed during that time how much better engineering had become through all these tools we had built. And when you looked at the actual physical making of the products that people had designed, you know, how the factories operated, you know, you kind of have this moment where you notice this entire digitally designed workflow suddenly turning into a very analog and physical method. So I decided to do something about it. And that's kind of how I got to what I'm doing. So tell us a little bit about how the company was founded. You know, you're interested in manufacturing. You obviously had this this background in terms of the technologies and the engineering. But, you know, what sort of problems were you sort of setting out to solve? Maybe you can share some examples of the technology and how it's used. Absolutely. So I'll continue on the origin story for a second because it will answer the question you're asking. One of the things that when you know, businesses form, there's sort of this confluence of a customer problem meeting the right set of technologies. And what I'd been noticing was that a set of technologies ranging from cloud computing to robotics to computer vision had been moving along quite rapidly. In particular, computer vision had been moving at a very high velocity. Computers can see now, not just count. So, you know, you start thinking about what problems can you solve today that you couldn't solve five years ago. And, you know, I've been thinking about a number of problems uh, along those lines. And then I met this person who's uh, sort of the co-founder of the company now along with me. And he was describing, in worked for a very large manufacturing company, and he was describing to me how they were having a hard time hiring people to build products, you know, really just staffing their factories. They were trying to hire 10,000 people a month in Asia and one of the locations in Asia. And they were like, we can't find those many people. And so they were trying to turn to robotics to try and 
fill in some of that capacity gap. And what he was describing to me was that setting up assembly lines using technology such as robotics was just really time-consuming, expensive, and inflexible. And as he was describing the problem, it started occurring you know, in my brain that everything that we had been thinking about on the technology front was kind of the ingredients to the solution. So net-net, the problem we're trying to solve is one, just to create a modern infrastructure for building products, specifically assembly lines. The fact in manufacturing is machines make parts, but humans assemble them into products. And as the world needs more products, you simply can't find enough humans to assemble those products. And that's the first problem we're solving is creating capacity. Now, because we're doing it in a modern way, in addition to sort of providing the muscles for, you know, building these products, we are introducing flexibility, improved quality. You start doing all these things that software can enable, and you really create a very modern infrastructure for building products. So you've mentioned... um software with regard to this kind of modern approach to building capacity and doing the the work on the assembly line. Obviously, manufacturing has long been associated with hardware, big machines, robotics, massive factories taking up a lot of space. So tell us a little bit about this software first approach. What does that actually look like in practice? You know, what kind of software is being deployed at what point in the manufacturing process? Kind of paint us a picture. You're absolutely right in your picture of factories is that these are large physical spaces inhabited by big machines and lots of people. So what we are bringing with our software layer is effectively eyes and brains to those machines. So, you know, what do the humans do when they're around machines? They kind of monitor them, they configure them, and they kind of make sure that they're doing the right thing. So effectively, we are doing that through software. So one of the things that we're building using computer vision, cloud computing, machine learning is the ability for these machines, particularly robots, to watch what is going on and take action in the right way. So I'll give you a simple example of how our software would work. You know, let's say on an assembly line, you're trying to insert screws into four holes that are there in a, in a product. Traditionally, human beings would take a screwdriver, go there and, you know, put in four screws. So now you can imagine you're telling a robot, go put those screws in those four holes. Well, what happens if there is a little bit of vibration or the part moves a little bit when the screwdriver shows up? A human being can adjust. A robot doesn't adjust. Our software will watch where everything is and guide the robot into doing the right set of tasks, right? So the software layer we're effectively building watches, guides, and then make sure that the operations that these robots are performing are accurate, and not just for one robot, but for all the uh, the ones that are building the product. And it's not just robots, it's also systems such as the conveyor that brings the product, the feeder that brings the parts. You know, we're orchestrating and managing all of the machinery that's required to assemble these products. Microsoft Dynamics 365 Supply Chain Management helps businesses build agile, connected, and resilient supply chains to effectively meet changing customer demand and ensure business continuity during times of disruption. 
Using predictive insights powered by AI and IoT, Dynamics 365 helps streamline operations to maximize efficiency, product quality, and profitability. Request a live demo today by following the link in the episode description. So you mentioned a couple of, um, I don't want to say buzzwords, but you mentioned computer vision, cloud computing, machine learning, AI. These are obviously terms that, that come alongside the word innovation a lot of the time and are clearly, from your guys' standpoint, this emerging technologies are going to power the future of manufacturing. What does it mean for people who currently work in manufacturing, the workers you know, at the front line, but also all the way up to management? I'm thinking both in terms of implementing these two new technologies, but debugging, fixing all that sort of thing. We hear a lot about, for instance, car mechanics suddenly having to become experts in, you know, coding in order to work out how to fix a car because they can't just go in and change it anymore. So is it the same sort of problem that exists in factories when we start using these new technologies? Yeah, that's a great question because, I mean, industry after industry, when it absorbs automation, goes through sort of a redefinition of the roles and skills as our automation comes in. And, you know, this has been going on not just in the last 10 years, it's been going on for 100 years, starting with the Industrial Revolution, and you kind of move the role of the craftsperson from being the person operating the machinery to the person doing the design. Think about how ATMs have come in. It's changed the role of what people do in banks. And I think so in our case, something similar is starting to happen where instead of the rote, repetitive tasks that people carry out, people are moving to more a customer-oriented, goal-oriented way of participating in manufacturing. So when I describe the screwdriver example I gave you with robots, you and I might find this strange to kind of believe, but there are people today, hundreds of them in factories, that do nothing but insert thousands of screws over and over again, every single day in these products. And what, as automation technology such as ours gets introduced into the factory, what we find those people doing is one, they are monitoring these machines and they're making sure that they're performing accurately. They're becoming the trainers to those machines. So they're becoming the, the, you know, the, the ninja rather than sort of the person performing the task. Like the supervisor. The supervisor, exactly. And they're able to do more. So I think the roles definitely change as you're able to take over more of the repetitive tasks that actually over time, you know, humans don't do repetitive tasks well. One of the things that happens in a factory when somebody's performing repetitive tasks, they get tired, they can get injured. So all those things happen. And that's the kind of, Redefinition. Now, it's not going to happen overnight. It's work that has, you know, it takes weeks or months for people to retrain. And I don't think we can shirk away from that reality. But I do think that, you know, in, in many cases, we are seeing higher paying, more satisfying jobs being created as automation gets absorbed in companies. 
whose sort of responsibility is it to make sure that training's done, right? I mean, if you guys are a supplier, you're creating a software, do you go in and train the workers on how to make sure they can be the supervisor? Is that the, the remit of the company? You know, how do we ensure that that training is definitely getting done as opposed to, you know, laying off all these workers and perhaps pulling in people who perhaps already have skills who might be younger and cheaper, less experienced, all these sorts of things. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, what we are watching in the companies that are doing it well is it's a, a three-pronged approach. Certainly guys like us who are the technology providers must participate in the reskilling. So in our, in our case, for example, the way somebody acts as a supervisor is they're shown a software interface and they use that software interface to supervise these machines. And it's our job to make sure that they're really good and fluent at that. And they don't end up in a situation, to use your previous analogy, where we're asking them to become coders. Like we need to make it easier for them. We need to make it so that they understand it. And that's our responsibility. And that's one leg of the stool. The second leg of the stool is the employer who has to make time and investment in their workers. And the good ones are doing that. They are making sure that their workers are getting retrained, reskilled, getting exposed to technologies such as ours and other systems that are coming into the manufacturing world. So that, I think that's a second a leg of the stool. The third one is the, I would say, local government, if you will. There's a policy uh, associated with it where people are, have to create some kind of vocational system so that when people are now joining the workforce, they have the skill set available. You know, sort of the education institution and the local government kind of need to cooperate to make sure that training is available, not just from companies like us, not just from employers like the ones we work with, but to the general public in large. Thinking about microfactories, how do they help with reshoring jobs? You know, globalization or finding low-cost pools of labor became a very big part of manufacturing. Like That's how manufacturers created capacity. They found low-cost regions where they could hire hundreds of thousands of people to build products for customers. So what companies are now really wanting to do is get manufacturing capacity that is close to their customers and can keep, you know, sort of build just as much as the demand requires. Nobody wants to ship 10,000 shoes from one end of the world to the other and then throw 9,000 of them away because you were only able to sell 1,000 of them, right? So what you want to do is have manufacturing that is in your end market that says, okay, let's use coffee machines as an example, that there's 2,000 coffee machines that we are going to sell next month. Let's build 2,000 this week so we can meet that demand as opposed to, I think we have to build 20,000 coffee machines because I need to create capacity for a year. So I think we are seeing the joining of two big ideas. One, bringing manufacturing jobs back to the country where the product is designed, engineered, and sold. So there's job creation. These are good, high-paying jobs. And the other is more on-demand or manufacturing that is less wasteful because you're making it much more in line with what the actual demand of the customer is. And so it's reshoring is a big idea. You're bringing manufacturing back, but you're also lining that up with this more agile approach to manufacturing. 
You recently wrote a Forbes article and it said that manufacturing was once an equaliser, but it's now a competitive advantage. Can you elaborate on that? Because I think for a lot of people that probably feels a little bit counterintuitive, especially nowadays, considering all the issues you've been having with supply chain over the last year and whatnot. How might this contribute to business resiliency, for example? I think there are some very big trends going on in manufacturing, which, you know, when I was writing that article, I was thinking about, which is that one of the things that the last 10 years have taught us is when people go and look at something that is what we would call a typical back office thing that none of us really pay attention to and really reimagine it using technology as a basis you can create a competitive advantage for a company. The best example I can give you is what has happened with the world of logistics. Like you think about when you and I ship a package, we just kind of drop it off and there is this entire machinery that takes over behind the scenes that gets the package from point A to point B. Now, most of us for all our lives have thought that that getting from point A to point B, those packages, how it doesn't feel very cool to think about, you know, you put things on trucks, you put them in sorting stations, you take them out, you put them on planes. They go Like it doesn't feel like a very, oh, well, it's amazingly cool. But companies that went in and really applied technology to that problem, UPS or FedEx, really separated themselves from everybody else because they really thought through what was like this dark back office thing and created a competitive advantage for the company whether that was speed of delivery, reliability of delivery, transparency of delivery. And my feeling is that when companies look at manufacturing, which as you know, you and I were talking, really is just for years has been these big buildings, big machines, lots of humans, and it's kind of not cool, right? So, you know, one of the things you can't do in that physical machine-based way without software is if you want to make a change Say, hey, make 10,000 of this, now make 5,000 of that. Reconfiguring the machines takes days. Now, if a software there can make it for you in a few hours, all of a sudden you have a more flexible manufacturing operation, and that is a competitive advantage. And I really do believe rethinking manufacturing as a digital-first approach really does create separation for companies treated that way Versus companies that say, yeah, 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 all I care about is, you know, give me 10,000 of that at five bucks. You know, that's, I think there's a big separation coming. So talking about this idea of manufacturing, perhaps becoming more cool, or, you know, maybe there's still quite a journey there to be had, but there's certainly potential, shall we say. I guess the conception or the perception of manufacturing having this aging workforce um, alongside a, a sort of younger generation with different kind of skill sets, different kind of interests, different ideas around what, what cool is, is, is kind of thinking about manufacturing as a digital process, using software to bring it into the 21st century, for lack of a better way of putting it. Is that perhaps a way in to kind of conceiving manufacturing as a career path for younger people? Absolutely. Look, I think, you know, what is amazing about those people who have been around for a while is they have so much knowledge. I think, and, and what the younger people may have in a healthy way is that they have respect for that knowledge, but they also are not tied to the old means and methods, right? You know, so I think every industry to transform itself needs sort of this magic combination of what I would say is like Obi-Wan Kenobi with Luke Skywalker. Like every every industry has to sort of have the, the experienced Jedi Knight 
sort of guiding the, the younger generation who's using more digital techniques. So I think when we talk about cool, we think about sort of easy to use, visually appealing, very capable pieces of software that we can use, such as, you know, you look at the iPhone, but behind it, you need this sort of really incredible complexity that has been coded into these digital things, which is what the experienced workforce has. So I don't think you can have coolness without the capability, if you will, that is needed. And I think it actually, digital technology is really a good way to bridge experience with sort of the future. It's a good way to encapsulate what's been learned and, you know, hand it over to the younger generation. So I do think this is a good moment in time that can, both generations can play a really important role in creating that cool future for manufacturing. Let's talk a little bit about cost, right? Because we didn't touch on that quite so much um, there. Given investments needed for innovation, and then obviously not to mention the cost in terms of reskilling, which we talked about before, perhaps potential downtime when you're installing new systems. How should manufacturing companies evaluate ROI in this digital age? You know, what kind of data points should they be looking at um, in terms of improving process? And maybe are there some intangible benefits that could be factored into that calculation? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the things that has been happening is that prices of things like robots and vision systems have actually been dropping. It's like, you know, just like when we noticed that, well, man, you and I watch Netflix movies on this incredible infrastructure is because data center costs have come down. And I think what we're seeing is in manufacturing, some of these other prices are coming down as well. So I do think it's like an 18 to 24 month payback period for an investment like this. Now, you're right that in addition to just the cost of the system and it replacing or paying for itself in terms of what people would have spent otherwise, there are additional costs. You said downtime, you said retraining. We see that in many cases, those times and costs are less than what they would have done through the old method. So, you know, you're still having to train workers. You're still having to configure lines. And so even these automated systems don't take much more time than what you would have done in terms of training humans to assemble a particular product. On the positive side, what automated technologies are enabling is improved quality. So one thing that we're noticing with some of our customers is that because the software logs and keeps track of every action, you can use the data coming off the process to actually design a better product. So you're able to see and say, okay, hey, where are all the problems happening? It's happening in this part of the product. It's taking too long or it breaks too often. And then you can come back using data as opposed to arguments and fact. You know, my opinion is that you should fix this particular thing. You're able to use data. And that process is a good process in many ways and a healthy process because it does connect two disciplines or three disciplines that never used to agree before. Engineering, manufacturing, and sort of operations, you know, that whole thing. I think there's a goodness of collaboration and information that also improves the overall quality of the product over time. And that's something that is intangible, not factored into the price, not factored into the cost. That's an overall good. For companies that might be exploring options, maybe people listening into this podcast right now, perhaps, 
how should um you know how should they be driving the intelligent automation conversation I'm thinking specifically amongst leadership it sounds like it's there's quite a mindset shift for for any industry but particularly for industries like manufacturing where perhaps there there does seem to be quite a lot of roadblocks to implementation hard conversations around costs and how that can be resolved so maybe you could tell us a little bit about this how to drive that conversation and amongst leadership so I would say the first thing you do in automation is you tie it to a bigger goal, you tie, or maybe two bigger goals. You tie it to building closer to the customer and making manufacturing more resilient. So it's not just about, hey, well, can we save $1 here or $2 there? Then beyond that, I think like many technology adoption things, before you go big, you kind of have to prove it to yourself. So you go through this phase where you take one product, in many cases with customers we worked with, they didn't even start with the product. They said, okay, take this product and instead of trying to automate everything about how that product is built, show me that these three steps are better using an automation approach as opposed to getting humans to do it. So you kind of, just like scientists do, you take these small experiments, you prove it, you prove your thesis and you build. And so I think you take it stepwise. You take a product, you automate half of it, then you automate the other half. And then when you've proven that you can do this well, you start to scale it maybe in one location and then maybe two locations and maybe three locations. And so you win support by proving it works before you really hit the gas on it. One final question for you, Amar. What does the future hold for manufacturing and what should companies be doing today to get ready for it? I will say the making of physical products is going to become as easy as the making of digital products. And let me sort of back up from there. I mean, in the last 15 to 20 years, making software has become so easy. You know, there's there's this one guy in Indonesia that has written a game, the Flappy Bird game. Like that is one person sitting in Indonesia who's created this game that hundreds of thousands of people use. And that's because the making of software or making of digital products became so much easier. Now, I've been in the software industry 25 years or 30 years now. And 30 years ago, if you told me to write a game, it would take me, <laughs> it would take an army to build it, right? You would have so much, so much work to do. And for a variety of reasons, it's become a lot easier. When you look at physical products today, when you come to somebody, let's say you have an idea for a better blood pressure monitoring device. You know it works. Now you need to make 5,000 of it. You know, getting that product made is hard. And so the thing that my team is focused on that I see as the future of manufacturing is it should become as easy for you to make that device as it is mailing a package, ordering a toothpaste, or, you know, playing a game. And I do think Manufacturing is going to stop being, as I say, you know, from the Harry Potter novels, you have these magicians that, you know, the master of dark arts that figure out how to do these things, that it's just going to become easy and obvious for people to get products made. And I think it will open innovation because all of a sudden engineers around the world will find it easier to get their ideas made. I see that as the future of manufacturing. That gives me you know, a lot of hope for what might come next. I'm just going to add a little addendum to that in terms of what do you think companies should be doing today to get to that point then, that vision that you uh, painted? 
<laughs> I think I will. Or one small step they can take right now. One small, uh, my, my one small step to them would be to embrace digital technology and start to, uh, you know, these technologies are more capable and ready than people believe they are. So I would find some plant, some product, some operation and start to apply digital technology on it yesterday. Love it. Amar, thank you so much for coming and joining us on the show, for um, talking to us on such a wide range of ideas from small scale to big scale to technology to labour and all sorts, and also sharing some really great actionable points there at the end as well. Hopefully everyone listening has got something they can take away and do, as you say, yesterday, perhaps, moving forward. So Amar, thank you for coming and joining us on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, John. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can find out more about Amara's work and indeed some of the broader themes we discussed today in the show notes. If you enjoyed the episode, please do take a few moments to rate and review the podcast. It really helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to hit subscribe and tune in next time to continue our conversation about innovation, resilience and our capacity to succeed. Learn how Microsoft Dynamics 365 Supply Chain Management is helping businesses build agile and resilient supply chains. Request a live demo today by following the link in the episode description.